0: Titus O'Reilly here, once again annoying you with our shameless plug for Bizarre, plus our membership program, More Mick and Me. Simply go to the link in the show notes. It's Sports bizarre. A trophy called the America's Cup.
1: Come and get it. Come and get it. If you think you're good enough. The hunt
0: for the weirdest. It sounds like you're not doing your research. It does sound like that. <laughs> the problem is I have done it and don't understand <laughs> it. strangest. I designed this ship to comfortably house a cow. Oh,
1: stop it. Cow out the back. Most
0: unbelievable. They launched him across the street by spraying him with the high-pressure hose. Stories to ever occur. Listed in the Guinness Book of World Records for the greatest ever folk. Pho- Ah. In the world of sport He actually popularised Gordon as a first name Which is a tough job Tough Sports <laughs> bizarre When the boat sailed, the crew was still nailing down her deck Travelled with five dogs, a cat, a lemur, a raccoon and a monkey called Peggy And the monkey knew how to sail <laughs> They're pirates So they're pirates We're getting to... Oh jeez It's time for the leaders of the hunt This is a spa meeting, Mick, grab your togs It's Titus O'Reilly
1: And Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar with myself, Mick Malloy, and uh, Titus O'Reilly, who is still on a deep dive into the America's Cup. Where did we leave it? We're navigating deep
0: waters, to use a nautical term. And where we we left it is an Englishman by the name of James Lloyd Ashbury had challenged in 1871 and he had gone home very unhappy. Because they kept changing the rules. He he felt they kept changing the rules. He felt like they were racing multiple boats against him. They were doing everything. And he accused them of, this is the New York Yacht Club, of unsportsmanlike (laughs) conduct. Yes. And was furious at them and went home and it divided England and the British from America. Sure. And the British suddenly had no interest in challenging for the America's Cup. So it's at the point where, in history, where you would say, the America's Cup could have just gone away yeah. and been nothing. Sure. Except for the Canadians. <laughs> the Can- so they put their hand up. They put their hand up. So in 1876, at the point where there hasn't been a race for about five years, they're starting to say, is anyone ever going to challenge? The British, they're just frosty. They yeah. are like, you know, your partner on a long car drive, they're not talking to you. It's not like
1: the uh, British to accuse anyone of cheating. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: anyway. So So they're all furious. They're not talking to them. So while they're doing it, the New York Yacht Club start to think we might need to be a little bit more less cheating. Well, a bit nicer to the challenger. (laughs) if we're going to get people to even challenge.
1: what was the last one. They just said we're going to race as many boats as we like.
0: Yeah, so originally it was, you know, first you'll, we'll race a fleet against you. So, you know, it'll be you versus 15 yeah. other boats. Yeah. Then they said we'll race your boat. You can have one boat and we'll pick on the day. On the day which one we which want. Which one of, of, from our fleet. Conditions. Yeah, so if it was a like, light wind day, you would put a boat that was good in light winds if it was a choppy day. And that's what they did. How did they think this was... Okay. Well, the reason they kind of had that view is they viewed, I think, wrongly that when the America sailed originally against the British yes. in the original one, that it was them against a fleet. But it wasn't really, they were just one of a fleet. No, it right. wasn't a mat race back then. Correct. And George Shiler, you'll remember, who was the guy that wrote the title of Deed and who was the last remaining of the American yeah. Syndicate. They kept going back to him and asking for his interpretation of the rules and he kept not siding with the British. He, not, kept, saying, he kept saying, you guys are cheating. cheating. <laughs> and he comes up again here because this is really the transition where we move into – the America's Cup becoming what it is today in yep, terms sure. of its format, but also we start to see the Americans put in some of the things that make it pretty hard to win. Okay. So with no one winning to challenge, the Canadians actually say, we are going to challenge. They say, we'll come. And it was a guy called Major Charles Gifford. He's the vice Commodore of the Royal Canadian Yacht Club. He was the challenger. Now, the big difference here, which really shocked the Americans, was the Royal Canadian Yacht Club is not a ocean-going racing club. Right, It races on the Great Lakes between Canada and inland. America, inland racing. So they race on Lake Ontario, these ones. So it's a bit right. of a difference. You've got fresh water yeah. expecting to race in the ocean with salt water sure. or a whole bunch of differences in the design of the boats, sure. right? The boat they send is called the Countess of Dufferin, And it was very rushed into production. And this is how it's described by the New York Yacht Club when it shows up. It says, she had fresh water written all over her. Her sail set like a purse's shirt on a hand spike. And her hull-lacked finish being as rough as a nutmeg grater. So a purse's shirt (laughs) is the person that holds the money on a ship. Right. So it just means it's very loose and flowy. It's it's a... Big sledge in nautical terms. I was about to say, I read it in its original form because it's such a, you know, billows like a purses shirt. Yeah, exactly. This is at a time its hull is all rough. It's wood and rough. Yeah. This is a time when the Americans are starting to like make their hulls out of metal right. and shining them. So they cut through the water. Or, or the Canadians have turned up with like a Viking ship. Yeah, right? basically. Like a, and so, like so they're a going Game of Thronesy. Yeah. Now the Countess of Dufferins the last schooner to ever challenge for the cup. Now, I know after this, sloops become popular. Yeah. Now, I know that will mean a lot to you and I. Mm-hmm. So I did look it up. A schooner's got two masts. Yeah. A sloop has one mast. There's lots of other differences, but that's the main one. So we're getting into the what you see now, one mast, one mast. instead of two. right? So the New York Yacht Club was so keen, they accepted this challenge, even though everyone was like, This is not going to be Well, they
1: accepted it because they knew they could
0: beat it easily. Well, one, they knew they could beat it, and two, no one else was, because of their antics, everyone else was like, nah. Anyway, so it shows up, and they do decide, and this is a couple of things that this does achieve this race. The New York Yacht Club decide that they will waive the customary six-month notice period that they normally have for a challenge, so they can usually build a ship. Yeah. So they waive that. But also they agree. Gee, they're confident. They're confident. They're also confident. they agree, and this becomes actually is important and, and a nice thing for them to do. They name a single defending yacht to meet the challenge. So this is where we Jeez. get one boat on one boat for the future. Do no they name it. it in advance or do yeah. they have their own playoff system? No, no well, they have their own playoff system. So basically what happens, Americans all race against each other and whoever is they their decide which boat, bait, yeah. they name. But So finally you're not competing against... Whoever they pick on the day. Anyway, the New York Golf Club is so desperate that they win easily. They win two races. They win it by a mile. It's not even close in 1881 the canadians come back everyone's a bit surprised the english are still not even challenging so the the americans are having to take these challenges from the canadians even though they don't (laughs) really want to yes this is five years later the canadians say we'll we'll challenge again this one's from the bay of quint yacht club which is also on lake ontario and this time they build a ship it's called the atalanta and its preparation is even more rushed so Her planking was not plain down, like it was just someone had hammered bits of wood (laughs) and her fittings were unfinished. Was it seaworthy? Well, money was so lacking that work had to stop several times while the Canadians waited for cash. So this was a – when the boat sailed down the Bay of Quint, the crew was still nailing down her deck. (laughs) That's not filling you with confidence if someone's making the boat while sailing it, I would say. You know, it's sort of not what you want to see. The sails were all fitting. It was all over it. So they had no time to actually sail. Right. You, the way you normally get to the New York from Canada is you sail, there's a St. Lawrence Ocean course that you can go out. You can right. go out to the sea, sort of there's an entrance to the sea. Yeah. And then you sail down to New York. So past Nova Scotia, that sort of area of the world. They didn't have time to do it. So instead they entered the Erie Canal. They went through a man-made canal to get to New York, right? Right. But the ship was too big for the canal. <laughs> this is <our> half <laughs> This is half So the crew shifted the ballast to one side and so she was leaning on her side. Oh, so it's sort of like a car going up on two wheels <laughs> to get through an alley or something. <laughs> it's total shambles. Then a team of mules towed the boat. She's oh. <laughs> <laughs> like the African queen <laughs> now. And so it showed the muddy bottom of the boat to everyone because right. it was up on its side. And so it got the nickname the Canadian Mud Turtle. That doesn't sound fast. No, no one is thinking this is like a good thing. So it uh it turns up it's facing a ship called Mischief, which is the second ever metal boat built in the USA. So, but the first racing one. So this is you've got this the Canadian mud turtle <laughs> that's been pulled by mules. <laughs> and running late. And running late and still being built up against this scientifically designed this is one of the futuristic this is one of the first scientifically designed boats the mischief like instead of just you know old wooden craftsmen looking at and thinking this is like they've done the measuring they've done the factory making this is the power of the american industrial system starting to be brought to bear on their yacht it's described in the new york times as a procession and that even the locals were not interested this was just boring (laughs) What it does do is when it finishes, they go back to George Shiler and they say, can you rejig the deed of gift again and change the rules again? Yes. And this is just constant of the Americans, you know, how can we change the rules again? So he's the only one still alive from the American syndicate. So yeah. his word is, it's like God. Yeah, it's like being yeah. able to take the Ten Commandments tablets yeah, yeah. back yeah. to God <laughs> and going, could you get rid of the one about coveting your neighbor's ox?
1: We write, <laughs> rewrite number eight. Yeah, rewrite.
0: I don't like number eight. So they rewrite it again, and what they do is they go to him and say what we want is vessels competing in the cup have to make it under their own sail. They can't be dragged by mules down a canal. Sure. They have to sail to the really? thing. Yeah. Now what's interesting about this is they're sort of doing this because they're worried that the Canadians are just going to keep sending these yeah. boats that can't yeah. handle the ocean. But it also creates a... Thing that helps the Americans, and it's unsure whether they thought of this at the time or later. But it means that anyone challenging from, say, you know, Australia or England or all these places have to sail to New York. So they have to build a ship that can cross cross the Atlantic and then race in New York, where the New York boats don't have to cross the Atlantic. So they're the Americans are focused solely on on a rate how fast fast it is, and that doesn't need to be as strong. So. Yeah. This is a real bonus. So that's one of the uh, changes in this D Incredible. Deed that they're stacking the deck, right, for them. There was also another one, though, and this was a bit which sets up for today. The there was a new paragraph about mutual consent, which says, the parties intending to sail for the cup may, by mutual consent, make any agreement satisfactory to both as to the date, course, time allowance, number of trials, rules, and sailing regulations. So basically it's becoming more yeah. you challenge and if we both agree to something – So we both agree it's a best of five or a best of seven or… But the Americans still have the whip hand because they can choose to agree or not to agree. And the thing in sailing, I don't think I said this in the first two episodes, home field advantage in sailing is huge. Yeah. So boats made for the British Isles are very different to boats because they've got deeper, choppier waters where America tends to be like estuaries and things like that. Yes. So so you got a massive advantage, right? So they do this, though, and the, the mutual consent is seen as a fairer thing, though, because at least you both get to negotiate and agree sure. on the race terms before. It still takes another three years, but in 1885, a challenge comes um, on behalf of the Royal Yacht Squadron in england england are back it's england are back they say and not only two challenges one from 1885 and one for 1886. so suddenly the new york yacht club are going right back. we're business. back we're back in business mm. we've learned from the canadian experience we've made the deed a little fairer a little unfair in one way a little fairer in another way yeah. the english is going all right we'll have a crack now that we can negotiate sure. a bit about what it's going to be so, the first challenger was a guy called Sir Richard Sutton, and he had a ship called Ganesta, and it was the Royal Yacht Squadron, which is the Queen's Squadron sure. based on the Isle of Wight. They suddenly realized the New York Yacht Club, we've got two years, two challenges. Mm. We better get serious sure. about this. So, one of the things that happens is there's a group of Powerful men in Boston and they decide, this is the Boston Brahims, you know, the people that own Harvard and the upper class of Boston. Very well-to-do. They're sick of the New York Yacht Fraternity owning the America's Cup. So they decide we will build a boat to To go into the Challenger Series. Mm -hmm. We'll we'll build a boat to become a defender and we'll race the New York Yacht Clubs. And if we win, because one of them is a member of the New York Yacht Club, if we win, it will be built in Boston. But if we still race for New York in York Yacht Club, but it will build the boat. We want to get involved in this. So suddenly you've got the the cream of New York. Yes. And the cream of Boston coming on board.
1: These are you've got California and the smart top right hand corner of America, which are really the the places where the smart people Is that fair.
0: And hello to all our (laughs) listeners in the South. Well, I think that's fair, isn't it? (laughs) Well, at this point, this is a California. They have strengths. This is at the point where California is still like the wild, <laughs> fully the Wild West. This is, you know, Boston and New York are the old, yeah. uh, got the big plutocrats. All those robber barons, the railway tycoons, the Vanderbilts. Top right-hand smart, top right-hand corner of America. Old smart money, you know. Yeah. So John Malcolm Forbes sets up. He's the funder of this. This becomes the first modern syndicate that is set up where you have a big money man, you have people that run it. It's all got scientists helping you with the yeah, design. Yeah. You're doing all these sort of things. So John Malcolm Forbes, he was, he's part of the famous Forbes family in New York. Yeah, uh, He was born in 1947. He's born into enormous money. His family has made money in the China trade in the 19th century. They were investing in tea. They would bring tea to America. Yeah. And they were sending opium to China. This is all part of the Opium Wars when op- Opium was You're sending legal. Opium to China. Yeah, well, Opium was legal in the West. That's and like coal to Newcastle, isn't it? I thought <laughs> th- 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 thought China was the no, home. The, Brit- and- the Chinese said we don't want to import bring Opium into our country because it will ruin our country. And the British fought a war to say no, we're doing it, and they won. So I'm hopefully informed about this. is, this is about why, this. yeah, this is why the, the Opium wars, This wrong. is why the Chinese now were so big on being we're a tough, strong country because they were humiliated back in the 19th and 18th century on this. And his family was caught up in all this. The Forbes are incredibly well-known family. Like John Kerry is a descendant of the Forbes family, the former presidential candidate and yes. things like this. So this yeah. is a very big family. Just they they invest in railroads after this, so they've got huge amounts of money. John Malcolm Forbes himself, he was the member of the Anidi Football Club, the first ever football club in the United States. And he has more money than God. He has so much money. So he says, I will pay for any boat. I'm happy to pay for any boat. Now, the guy that he gets to run it, so this is the modern thing, you have the money man and then you have the guy that actually runs It's a guy called General Charles Jackson Payne. Now, he becomes basically for the next three or four America's Cup, he becomes the guy that runs all the defences. Yes. He is the guy on the ground organising this. Now, he was born the great-grandson of Robert treat Payne, who signed the united states declaration of independence so he's like real this money guy his brother died at gettysburg um he was fighting for the north and he was part of the group that repulsed pickett's charge which is the famous moment of the gettysburg battle he went to harvard he was one of the oarsmen in the first boat race between harvard and yale which was the first ever (sighs) inter-college sport event ever which sport college sports so big So he's huge in that. He was a massive golf fan and he was one of the first country clubs and golf clubs built in North America, which many of them then based how they're set up off. He loved golf so much that he used to play in the snow (laughs) using red golf balls (laughs) so he could find his ball. I love this guy. Yeah. He made a fortune when he graduated from Harvard in railways. He then fought in the Civil War. And came back a hero. He actually led a black volunteer soldier division, which is yep. very rare. Sure. And came back an absolute hero. He then married George Shiler, the guy who was done the deed of gift. Yes. And the part of the Americas. Yes. syndicate. He married his daughter. Okay. So he's already tied up in all of this. And he comes up and starts to design this boat called Puritan. This is the level of detail he goes to. He shaves off a quarter of an inch of the boat's deck to lighten it by several hundred pounds. Right. This is starting to build boats that are no longer just pleasure cruises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like proper racing Jets, sort yeah. of stuff. So he builds this amazing boat that's going on. They go down to New York. They beat Gordon Bennett's boat, who's still the Commodore of New York. They, suddenly they're going to be going up against Richard Sutton's Ganesta. Now, in the opening race... The Puritan captain tries to bluff the Ganesta, and the Ganesta has right of way. Yes. But he makes the American ship, the Puritan, makes like it's going to hit it. And it's a game of chicken. But the the British ship has the right of way. Neither of them flinch and it yeah. takes off the front, the sprit, which is the front thing sticking yep. out of the boat, which means the American ship is instantly disqualified. And even the New York York Club have to say, yeah. You have you, to cop it. You have to cop it. So they write to Richard Sutton. They say, you can sail the rest of the course and you win because the other boat's disqualified. Mm. If you do it within the seven hours a lot of lottery, sure. which you can easily, you win. He informs them. He says, we're very much obliged to you, but we don't want it in that way. We want a race. We don't want a over." So he shows great sportsmanship and says, I'm not going to take the what." He'd have been one nil up. And it's he their says, fault. Yeah, and he says, no, it was an accident. The New York Times write, Sir Richard Sutton is the most popular man just now in America. (laughs) So they just instantly love him. Sir Richard Sutton, he wrote a note to Mr Forbes saying that he was convinced the collision was purely accidental and that the cost of repairing the yacht would be trifling and that he could not think of allowing the owners of Puritan to pay for it. Very chivalrous. This makes him the most popular man in America annoyingly though they restart racing and both races are incredibly tight but the americans win both of them the second one they only win by a minute and 38 seconds that is close so if he'd won the first one one 0 it would have this is the closest this starts <laughs> to make people think this is yes you know this, game is, on. this is game on but he goes home and he's lost he's the most popular man in New York when he leaves. The America's Cup Hall of Fame have created a medal called the Sir Richard Francis Sutton Medal in 2018 Mm. for sportsmanship. Um, But he dies at 41, so he can't challenge again. Right. The Scots are having another challenge in 1886, the America's Cup again. And this is my favourite challenger of all time. Here we go. So 1886, the Royal Northern Yacht Club in Scotland and it's from actually an Irishman who's the captain. So you have to challenge through a club, and he's a member of this So this is club. an Irish challenger? Well, it's an Irish guy leading it, but it's through a Scottish yacht. Scottish! Car, so the Scots are now having a go. So the guy that's challenging through the Royal Northern Yacht Club in Scotland, and he's a member of that club, he was born in Ireland. His name's Lieutenant William Paddy Hen, right? yes. So he was born in Dublin in 1847 and his father's a huge landowner in County Clare. So he's got a lot of money, landed gentry. Yep. At the age of 13, and I think he's sort of like, you know, often the second or third son, if you're not going to inherit the whole thing, you kind of get sent off to the Navy. <laughs> so he gets, he, at 13, he enters the Royal Navy. Yeah. Right? And he's a cadet above the HMS Trafalgar. And between 1862 and 1866, he then gets moved on to another ship called the Galetta. And at the time, it's one of the fastest ships in the Royal Navy. Mm-hmm. It actually goes up to America during the Civil War and sails through the Gulf of Mexico and, you know, sort of hangs around yep. the Civil War. doesn't do much then, but but he's been to the Civil War, you know, so he's seen things even yep. as a young kid, right? I mean, he's being a, a Navy guy from 13.
1: He's got some life experience. He's got
0: He's then in 1866, he's on some Royal Navy ships that lay the transatlantic cable. So this is the telegram cable. So the first ever, he's part of that. He's then a sub-lieutenant on the HMS Daphne. Now, it serves in the East Indies and along the African coast. Now, it is a ship along with its two sister ships, the Dryad and the Nymph. They're part of this new Amazon class. So these are steam screw sloops. So they're sailing ships, but they also have a steam engine, right? Yeah, gotcha. They're the fastest. Hybrids. Yeah. They are. They're like a hybrid. <laughs> They're the Prius of their… Uh. Yeah, yes, that's right. <laughs> so these are the fastest ships the British Navy have at the time, and he's on one of them, and they become the weapon against the fight against the slave trade in East Africa. So when the British decide… Enough's enough. Enough's enough and actually ban slavery and yep. actually do a lot to end it. He's on one of the ship, and their job is chasing down slave ships. Right. He personally shows great bravery doing this and capturing these ships. In one vessel, he bought alongside and overtook. There were 156 men, women, and children on it, which he rescued. And they estimate he was part of operations that rescue thousands of African slaves. Good on him. So, you know, this is a guy is has been to the Civil War, the Transact Land hit Cable. Yeah. He's part of the fighting the slave trade. He's out and about. In 1872, he's second in command of the expedition that goes to Africa to find the explorer Livingston. With Henry Stanley, he's part of that one. The one funded by Gordon Bennett, our friend who used to race the newspaper proprietor used to race naked. I remember he funded that one. Of course. So he's on that too. He finally retires in 1874. He's a lieutenant when he retires, and he decides that he's going to just pursue his love of sailing. And he can do this because the rents collected from his family have got 7,660 acres in County Clare. So he's he's rich for the rest of his life. Yeah. So he sets off to the Mediterranean and he's just living a life of sailing around on a ship. That's all he's doing. Well played. He then meets his wife. Her name is Susan Matilda Cunningham Graham Bartholomew. (laughs) They didn't it around in those days, (laughs) did they?
1: So Susan,
0: as we'll call her. Yes. So she's an amazing lady. She's born on 11th of June, 1853 in Scotland. And her family's descended from a bunch of earls and her grandfather was a wealthy cotton spinner who'd made a huge fortune. So she had, on one hand, the aristocracy, on the other hand, this new money coming in. So she was filthy rich. She's a good catch. Good catch. Her mother died when she was two years old and so they were brought up by their father. They had huge houses, nurses, servants, butlers, governesses. He's retired and sailing. He's a good life. He's retired. So she... We don't know much about her early life, but then her and her brother are sailing in the Mediterranean in a small yacht in 1877. So, William Hen has only just retired three years before. Mm. And they meet William Hen and they just instantly fall in love. And so, it's a true love sure. for the rest of their lives, yeah. right? They get married a few years later. And then she moves in with him on his boat, uh, the Gertrude. And this is very unusual. A man yeah. and woman even married living on a boat and she becomes a full proper sailor into all of this, you know, even though so yeah, she's yeah, this she. aristocrat, well-brought-up woman but she's can sail a boat is it and is upon? very… Was ad- it seen beneath her? It or? was just seen weird, like she was this adventurer, you know. They, yeah. But you'll find out in a second, William and Susan didn't care what people really thought of them yeah. and were incredibly likeable. Everyone liked them even though mm-hmm. they were… They're members of the club Nautique de Nice in, you know, in France, yes. and they they spend their whole life just sailing around the Mediterranean Sea and the coasts of Ireland and Britain. They then have bought a ship called the Galetta, which is named after his former navy ship. Yes, and they decide, well, why don't we challenge for the America's Cup? Fair <laughs> oh, yeah, cool. So have they a bit do of spare time on their hands. Now, the Galetta was the sister ship of the Gnesta had raced the year before and gotcha. gone very close. Yes. But the difference was she, while the Ganesta was built to be a racing ship, the Galetta wasn't really. She was clumsy and she had a huge lead keel. But they went over anyway and they sailed across the Atlantic and that made Susan Hinn the first woman to ever cross the Atlantic in a racing well yacht. They arrive in New York and the sailors at the New York Yacht Club are shocked for several reasons. First, the ship's... Totally set up for leisure cruising. Right? Susan Henn funds a lot of this because she's got a lot of money. So does her husband. but she And she has a passion for below-deck furnishings. <laughs> <laughs> so they live on board. The Galita's living room looked like the interior of a British castle. It it's hilarious. Solid wood furniture, yep. mahogany panelling, mirrors, paintings, lace curtains, rich drapes, Crystals, plates everywhere, an iron fireplace, potted <laughs> palms, and a leopard skin on the floor. A fireplace on a boat is still blowing my mind. And it's a big iron pot. So they don't even take all this off for the race. <laughs> they leave all this on. They even tow their dinghy behind them as they race. Good lord. <laughs> so they are not – this is the most half-assed yeah. attempt at racing, right? They don't have a proper racing crew. They've got a crew that works on their ship when they're cruising. The crew's very comfy downstairs, I'd suggest. Yeah. Before the race, the hens become socialites in New York City and they become so popular that everyone loves them except the New York Yacht Club are a bit like, this is not conducive to a great race. They make so many new friends, all their friends start bringing them gifts like they know that she loves pot plants so that just weighs the boat down (laughs) even more. (laughs) So you gotta remember they're up uh, against the Boston we've got you a potted Syndicate. Palm tree. They're, they're up against the Boston Syndicate yeah. who are ruthless, like will shave yeah. an inch off the top they're of the deck it. to get the weight down. And these guys have an iron fine plate. <laughs> and a dinghy. And a dinghy at the back. Now, the second thing that shocked the New York Yacht Club is the fact that on board the boat, as well as all this downstairs, is kind of a floating zoo on board. What do you mean? The hens travelled with five dogs, a cat, a lemur, a raccoon, and an official mascot of the ship, a monkey named Peggy, who wore a pullover and a hat with Galetta and the Royal Northern Yacht Clubs on it. This is like a Noah. It's like Dr. Doolittle's. (laughs) Two of every animal. There's livestock running around the deck. Yeah, five dogs, a cat, a lemur, a raccoon, and a monkey called Peggy. And the monkey knew how to sail. (laughs) The monkey used to, um, could be seen during the cup racing, pulling on the ropes and jumping up and down. Tighten the jib, little fella. Yeah, it would. There's a banana in it. It knew what to do, it knew how to pull the ropes in the right time. So they would send it to do things. And when they were winning, if they were ever winning, it would run onto the bow sprint at the front and cheer and clap. (laughs) It knew what racing was. So it, oh, it becomes. Oh, this is fantastic. One American reporter wrote during one of the races only Peggy the monkey seemed to know what to do and let the Galita's lengthy bow sprint determined to lower the sails. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so this has all showed up. The race itself was against a, a boat called the Mayflower, which is the Boston Syndicate yes. again. Now, you won't be shocked, but the Mayflower just absolutely cream Galetta. Yeah. It won the two races easily. wasn't even really a race. After the races, though, the couple, the hens, continue to charm the Americans. They hang around. The Americans love them. Yes. And for the next eight years, they sail around the Florida Keys and the Gulf of Mexico having a marvellous time. Just prior to returning to England, Peggy the monkey passes away, Mm. which is sad. So much respect to the American captains have for her (laughs) that she's wrapped in a Union Jack. And carried by four American skippers from nearby yachts and given a proper burial at sea. <laughs> this is the greatest chapter
1: yet of the America's Cup. Oh, it's I like, have no
0: idea about this. Don't you think this is what they should have now? Is like you have to have some sort of animal on board? <laughs> totally. Just be named. Yeah. I, I reckon a whole ship should be just uh, manned by monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> After this, the Hens finally go home. Lieutenant Hen unfortunately becomes ill and dies at the age of forty-four. And after William's death, Susan though continues to sail and live aboard the yacht until her death in nineteen eleven. She stayed on the boat for a long time. But Hen and his wife had become so popular that they basically wiped all bad feeling between the British right. and the Americans. So even that was the most shambolic. Of challenges yes. almost of all time. Mm. They had just been so loved that the Americans were feeling very good towards the British yeah, and vice versa. So this uh, makes sense. The defender of that one that won the Mayflower, it was sold in 1905 to a woman called Lady Eva Barker. She chartered or rented out the Mayflower to an adventurer called Guy Hamilton Skull. This is in 1908. Mm. He was a former lion hunter in Africa and a policeman in New York. And he headed a company called the Southern Research Company, which was, it specialised in literally in finding buried treasure. It set its sights for a, on a Spanish galleon that had sunk two centuries earlier off Jamaica and it set off, a hurricane hit it just near an island and it knocked the whole rig, the whole mast and everything down and the boat went down several times. They decide the best thing to do to try and save this boat is they were carrying a load, several crates of dynamite. So they think if we get the dynamite <laughs> off the ship, it might help. Mm. So they throw the dynamite into it and the boxes come back on the waves and smash a hole in the side of the ship oh, and it goes Lord. down. Two steamers pick them up. It went down? The of, yeah. They, they sunk the ship, ship. They with, sunk their with their own dynamite. With their own dynamite. So that was the end of the Mayflower. So we get to the point now where it's a lot, 1887, oh. it's a lot more happy times between the British right. and the Americans. And the Scots challenge again, and this is the one that sets the Americans a bit crazy. Yes. So this was a challenge that came out of it was a Scottish yacht designer, George Lennox Watson, and he designed a yacht called the Thistle. And the thing that drove the Americans crazy is he built it in secret and at launch, it was shrouded from view with a keel completely hidden by a timber and canvas structure. Well, well, well. Now, anyone that knows the history of the 1983 it, America's Cup yes. with the wing keel will know they famously hid that keel. That was history repeating. This happened in 1887, but it was the first time yes. that the sh- competing ship, the Americans didn't know what they were up against, and it freaked them out. This is brave. Like if we think they overreacted but in 1883. They take it then, yeah. So at launch it had this around that this box made of around it. Then it got sent all the way over to America and it was dry docked in New York and there again they draped it so the Americans couldn't see. Americans were trying to send divers down to look at it. <laughs> this is all very familiar. All very familiar. So they yeah. are really going nuts about it and this is dry they just It just
1: drives you mad. There could be nothing there. It's just yeah. the hint that there's something that something you can't mad. see is enough.
0: Now, General Payne, you'll remember who was the guy that ran the syndicate for the Boston, he was back again a third time with a full iron ship called the Volunteer, which ends up being one of the great ships of the America's Cup. But he is looking at this going, well, this is interesting. Like, What's going to happen here? What happens is the Thistle and Volunteer are both measured before the race and it's found, and this is part of the, the deed, it's found that the ship, from the thistle is 1.46 feet longer than they had said it was going to be. You've got to sort of give some right. of the idea of the dimensions. Now, that is a fairly minor 1.46 feet nah, is, in the scheme of things. How, how long is the boat altogether? Oh, it's 86 feet. Come on. So the Americans go nuts, and mainly because it's been, they have still haven't seen the keel and everything. They jump on this and go, this boat is. An illegal boat. We don't know what's underneath it, and we've already found this. And that's no, too nuts, long, right? The George Watson the Thistles designer. He says, "It's look. It's just an overlook. It's like when you're building a ship this big. You know, this pre factory yeah. stuff. You know, this can happen, right?" Mm. The New York Yacht Committee go to George Shiler and say, "Can you be the referee as the you know the old man of the? Song. They always go back to they you, always go back they? The, like the Pope. He writes back and says, "I don't know what you're going on about. It's fine." <laughs> I don't get a lot of, lot of joy from George, to, do I? He they? never – well, he doesn't normally. He normally just goes, no, no. I don't know what you're doing. Stop with the carry-on. So they end up racing. The Americans are spooked, but they end up just belting the thistle. The right. thistle for all the carry-on. just been more games. The, but it's exactly a precursor of 983 with cool. the wing keel. They're the hiding the keel. They're trying to get the ship banned. Them not being able to get it banned. Yeah. Right? The difference is the Americans go on and win. They lost by 19 minutes first race and nearly 12 minutes the second sure. race. The thistle goes back to British waters, never races again in the America's Cup. But what does happen to it is the German Emperor Wilhelm II sees it and goes, I love the look of that boat. I'll buy it as a cruiser sort of boat. He was the guy who was the last ever German Emperor who bought on World War I and really? was deposed at the end of World War One, okay. So he was the one that ended up buying that. I should just say this was the first one where gambling had become a huge part of the America's Cup. So bets were taken across the nation. The telegram relayed the moves of the boats throughout the race. And in places like San Francisco, they had live events where a model yacht course was set up. And people would move model yachts on the course yes. so the bettors could watch it. Like So it was like sort of almost like watching it live. That was what was happening. Now, the Americans have been so freaked out about the thistle that they go back to George Shyler and say, we would love you to change the deed again. Make some changes. Jesus. And this one has been characterized, this new version of the deed, as a mixture of bad sportsmanship, bad law, and bad English. (laughs) (laughs) So it's the third deed of gift. And they're getting to the point where George is getting old. There's... There's only so many more times I can go they back can and look go. Well. To him. You know, remember the original one was 300 words? This was 1,256 words. Mm. The New York Yacht Club have a lot more say in what's in it than Shula does this time. It's very legalese and contractual Doesn't language, it. right? In the new deed, it says the challenging club has to give 10 months notice in writing and they have to put the names of the owner, a certificate of the name, the rig, and the full dimensions of the challenging vessel and a whole bunch of things that they have to do in this. This basically is giving the Americans time. Anyone that challenges them, they know what sort of ship's coming, the size, the dimensions, and they have time to build or modify their ship. It's a huge advantage. This drives the British nuts. Mm. They are furious. They also put in something with an idea of if they ever lost the America's Cup, they didn't want it to ever be... A right of veto? Well, they didn't, ha- they didn't want it to ever, the races to ever occur like in the Solent or various places around Britain where they would have advantages. Yes. So they said it had to be an ocean race. Yeah. So they got that put in as well. So this was an absolute them stacking the deck. Of course they have. That's all they've done. In it's the way inception. of the thing. Now... At the very end of this being put in place, which infuriates everyone, but it's the new deed, 1890, George Shiloh finally dies of heart trouble. He's on board the Commodore's yacht in New York Harbor when he dies. Mm. And this is the last of the original American syndicate left alive and Mm. he's passed away. And it suddenly means there's no more being able to go back and alter the deal in that way, the deed of gift anyway. And it means any future changes are going to be settled by law, legal challenges. Oh, God. And we might leave it there at that point. Do they
1: bury him? sea burial for
0: George They got four monkeys out.
1: (laughs) All right, here we go. We enter another exciting chapter, the court system.
0: We're just entering the 20th century, so into the 19th century. This is is where we're going to have our favourite challenger of all time, Sir Thomas Lipton. (laughs) who, uh, the tea magnet it's going to get wild. Cannot wait. Thank you again. And ladies and gentlemen, now we have a short outtake from our bonus episode we do every week from the Bizarre Plus membership program.
1: I've got a friend who is adamant that who'd like to come around for badminton is a euphemism for swinging. Yeah. So if someone invites you around for badminton, don't turn up in your tennis kit. That's a big assumption. Oh, I know though, isn't it it? Is if you do. That's like you take your big new, and swing. if you do turn up in your tennis gear with a badminton racket. They'll be going, "What are you doing?" But it's even worse Get in when the you, tub when you turn up in
0: your smoking jacket and they go, "That's a weird thing to play badminton." Well, I know you are
1: fine without a net, but I'm just saying it's a big question that needs to be answered. Is uh, that a euphemism? Is that a euphemism? Hi, would you like to come around Monday night for some badminton? And then
0: I gonna uh, uh, uh. That's a big one. You don't want to get that one wrong. <laughs> Either way, it's embarrassing. That's just a perfect cross-purposes conversation, isn't it? Like someone says, would you like to come around for badminton? Yeah. I'm not into badminton. And the other person's going, oh, I think you'd like to plot that with us. Would you and like And you're to... like, no, really, I'm not into it. Uh, maybe after midnight, some croquet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Would you like to come over for some badminton? Not really. I'd prefer to be invited around for some group sex. <laughs> and then you turn up and it's badminton. <laughs> it's throwing my head in there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I've been invited to a few orgies and turned up. And <laughs> there's that's... the court set up. That's a short clip from our bonus episode each week for members who join our Bizarre Plus program. If you're interested in signing up to that and hearing more of it, simply go to the link in the show notes or go to BazaarPlus.com.